find your life very challenged because when you look and evaluate your own spiritual walk, you say, I got a lot of work that needs to happen inside this piece. <laughs> and so perhaps you're not bored at all, but maybe perhaps you're in this place and you're like, when I evaluate my own spiritual walk, I say, man, there's so many areas of growth that is needed in me that I really don't even know where to start. And let me say this, friends. God wants us to grow and mature and to step up our game. So if you're in a place and you say, on this journey with the Lord, I don't know quite where to start. I'm going to tell you exactly where to start. You can start at Pastor Joy's first point. You can start at surrender. He's so cute. Okay, let me get myself together. <laughs> God is good. You know what? When we're stepping up for the Lord, the very first place that we need to step up is truly surrender. And I think that there's times that we can get confused what surrender really means as a Christian. And so I want to do my best through the grace of God to explain that to you because I really do believe it's so important in our spiritual walk with God to surrender. A scripture that I think br brings very good perspective here is found in 2 Corinthians 7.10. It says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly, worldly sorrow brings death. Friends, there's a difference between surrender to Christ and just being sorry. There's a difference between a godly sorrow that leads us to repent, to surrender to the Lord, and a worldly sorrow that we got caught. We don't like how we look in front of people. It brings frustration, bitterness, and eventually death. See, many of us may not recognize that there's a difference in us, but we see a difference when we're bringing correction to our children, right? If you're a parent in this place and we just had the honor of dedicating all these beautiful babies up here, if you've parent for any length of time, you see a difference between when a child is truly sorry and when he's just caught, right? I had actually one of my kids who's going to rename uh, Anonymous today, gave one of these apologies this week. Sorry! One got caught hitting a sibling. And sometimes in our walk with God, we have that kind of worldly sorrow. And let me explain this to you. I want to explain it by going into the Old Testament for a minute, and we're going to learn of what the difference is between true godly sorrow, which brings repentance and a surrender to the Lord and his lordship, him being Lord, which means master, and us being his servant, and the difference between just a worldly sorrow because we are more concerned with how we look in front of people. And we're going to learn from this from 1 Samuel, and we're going to talk about King Saul. Okay, but I want to give a little bit of background to King Saul here. See, there's no salvation without surrender, and we must move past just being sorry to complete surrender in order to step up and be all God has called us to be. Saul, the first king of Israel, never really learned how to do this. See, if you know anything about King Saul, you can go and read in 1 Samuel. That's where it gives his account, his true life story. But King Saul was one who uh, came from the smallest tribe of Israel. There was 12 tribes, and the smallest tribe was the tribe of Benjamin, and this is where King Saul came from. And I think it maybe gave him a little bit of a complex because the Bible says that he was, looked at himself as small in his own eyes. First Samuel 15, 17 says, Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you keen over Israel. Friends, so often God saves us. He delivers us from so many things. But instead of moving on to what God has called us to be, to be kings and royal kings and queens and priests before the Lord, we keep remembering what we were when we got saved. 
We focus more on what we used to be instead of who we are and who we are becoming, and it stunts our growth in him. And sometimes it puts us backwards where we never truly grow. This is what happened to King Saul. See, God anointed him through the prophet Samuel and called him out from the smallest tribe and from the smallest clan and said, I'm making you king over the entire nation. But see, Saul couldn't get past his own insecurities. And when correction came to Saul, King Saul, when correction came to him, instead of him having a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, that leads to surrender, he had a worldly sorrow. He had a kind of sorrow that, you know what, I'm going to say I'm sorry because I look bad in front of people. And so the prophet Samuel prophesied over him and said, you know what, God is going to take the kingdom from your hands and give it to one who's more worthy than you. God is going to take away the blessing that he's given you because you have not received it and walked in it. And he's going to find one who's going to have his heart and be worthy of the blessing. Friends, we've got to get past that kind of complex of just remembering who we used to be. And so, therefore, we care so much about what other people think instead of what God thinks. This is what Saul's problem was. And so Saul didn't take the news very well that the kingdom was going to be ripped from his hands. And so that became, he began to get bitter. And friends, you're going to have to go back and read all of it because it's so much detail. But I want to just kind of summarize it for you to bring this point about. But he began, he began to be bitter. And he, from his bitterness, he began to be jealous, looking for who is that one that's more worthy than me. And along comes David, King David. And if you've been in church at any length of time, or even if you went as a child, you've heard about David. David who slayed the giant Goliath, right? David who, who became king of Israel and was one of the most powerful, maybe the most powerful, most people and scholars believe, king ever. One that, that God said is a man after my own heart. So David comes along and the, the women start singing a song about how Saul ki- killed thousands, but David tens of thousands. And King Saul began to get very jealous because at first he received David. Hey, who's not going to receive a commander of the army who's like kicking some butt, right? So he received him. But when he heard that song that he killed thousands and someone had more accolade, more props, more pats on the backs, more attaboys than him, his pride took over because, friends, Insecurity and pride always go together. They always, they seem opposite, but friends, they're more like the flip side of a coin. They go together. And so his pride became to, to rise up and he got jealous of David. And from there on, he started looking for ways to kill David. At one time, you know, he actually, when David was young, an army uh, uh, leader in his army, God actually blessed David with lots of victory and Saul actually rewarded him for killing uh, some Philistines and gave him his own daughter as a wife. So there was a connection. This was his son-in-law, okay? But his jealousy overtook him. And one time at a family dinner, friends, he threw a spear right at David trying to kill him. So David knew it was time to hell tail out of there, right? He knew it was time to get on out. And so he did. He, he, fle- he fleed with his life. But that didn't stop King Saul. King Saul took many military excursions to look for David to kill him. Instead of going after the enemies of his country, he was so jealous he went after David. And this is where we're going to pick up our foundational verse here. And it's in 1 Samuel 26, 21. This is the second time that Saul got an army together to find David. And in verse 21, it says, Then Saul said, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son, because you considered my life precious today. I will not try to harm you again. Surely I have acted like a fool and have been terribly wrong. Friends, I want to bring up some very key points on, on the difference here between being having a godly sorrow and having a worldly sorrow, difference between what it means to really surrender and what it means to just kind of <laughs> pretend to surrender. See, two times Saul went after David to kill him. And two times God delivered Saul into David's hands. David could have killed him instead. And this was one of those times where David and one of his, uh, his homeboys in the the army with him went down into where Saul was sleeping with the big 
army, like three times larger than his army, than David's army. And he went right where Saul was sleeping, and then he took his, uh, his jar and his spear, and he called out to King Saul. And King Saul realized, man, he could have killed me. And so here we see what seems like from mouth service or lip service, it seems like Saul was repenting, right? Listen to those words again. Then Saul said, I've sinned. Come back, David, my son, because you consider my life precious today. I will not try to harm you again. Surely I've acted a fool and have been terribly wrong. Friends, it's peculiar that Saul's response to his life being spared seemed to be a, repent, a repentance. It seemed to be he was truly sorry from his lip service. But there's a difference between lip service and true surrender of the heart. And how many times are we in that same place where we have lip service to the Lord? God, forgive me. If you get me out of this mess, God, I will give you my whole life. How many people have prayed that kind of prayer when they've been in a mess? God, if you will pay this bill, I promise I'll send my tithe in the, in the mail, right? God, if you would help my child, I promise I will parent them in a different way. God, if you get me and fix my marriage, I promise you I will have a godly marriage. God, if you do this, if you do that, and we give this lip service that seems like we're truly sorry for our behavior when really we're just trying to manipulate the situation. And God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. And he's surely not a man that he will be manipulated, friends. And we have got to be careful because we, just like Saul, can say, I'm sorry with our mouth, but never really truly surrender in our hearts. And if we don't surrender from our heart, if we don't have a godly sorrow, then it won't lead to a godly repentance that won't lead to a complete surrender to Christ, which means we aren't even truly saved, friends. So many people fall into this trap and we've got to be careful because if we want to step it up the first place we have to step it up is with ourselves so often we can see everybody else's fault but when it's time to hold up the mirror to our own soul and to look at our own self we don't see anything wrong with us matter of fact we have every excuse of why our behavior is a certain way because what somebody else did well i said i was we're just like my three-year-old who said sorry and don't really mean it Friends, we've got to stop. And the reason why we have so many false humility and insincere apologies like King Saul is because we have this complex that we care more about what we look like to others and don't really think about who really matters, and that is Lord of Lords, King of Kings, Prince of Peace. And so, see, the Bible says a fool says in their heart there's no God. Saul had false humility and insincere apology. Foolish, insincere apologies mark the way of how Saul repented. Friends, the Bible talks over and over about true repentance. And see, Saul cared more about looking a fool. And sometimes we care more about looking a fool than what David who had the heart of God, said, I will be even more undignified than this. I don't care if someone makes fun of how I worship. I don't care if someone calls me a Bible-thumping Jesus freak. I don't care. I'm going to be focused on God. I'm giving him everything, and I'm not going to care if I look a certain way to the world. But Saul never can get over his own image and low self-esteem that he was never able to fully surrender. If we desire to step it up and go to the next level, we've got to fully surrender. We've got to move past, I'm sorry, I got caught, to I truly repent, which means a change of heart, a change of mind, and a change of direction. That leads to true salvation, friends, and we've got to have that surrender. Before we do anything for Christ, we need to allow Christ to do something for us. We need to allow him to come in and cleanse us from our sin and our iniquity towards that separation separates us from him, friends. We need to make sure that we are getting right with God. We must be sincere in our surrender, friends. We've got to step it up, and this is the place we've got to step it up first. And Pastor Joshua is going to talk about after we get to the place where we step it up and truly surrender, that we need to bring a true sacrifice. Sacrifice. That's not a word that we like to use in our day-to-day -day usage. 
because um, sacrifice is a word that in no way can be correlated with halfway or 50% off or blue light special or buy one, get one free or a deal or a bargain or I'll buy that for a dollar. The word sacrifice cannot be correlated with any of these type of things because actually the word sacrifice can only be correlated with, with the word full price. And so, but why pay full price when you can wait and pay only a portion of the price? Isn't that what we do for the most part? Any, anybody here buy anything full price? If you raise your hand, if you are a person that hardly ever buys anything full price, raise your hand. Look at this. We, we live in a society that we like deals. We like to negotiate. We like to talk people down. We're waiting for that 50% off. We're waiting for that buy two, get one free, or buy one, get one free, or or buy three, get three free, or whatever. And so, so, what it, so I don't know anyone personally that likes to pay full price for anything. And so we wait for Black Friday, and we, we wait for, it, the, for the uh, newest model to come out so that we can get the oldest model. And so, but there is only one time when a buyer will pay full price for something, and that's when they fully understand the value of the item. For instance, if it's a collector's item or it's a rare item, then you will have people that will bid up the actual price of this item because the value of that item in the buyer's eye is more considerable. Does that make sense? That's the only time you will find full price is when the buyer is willing and fully understands the value of that item and is even willing to say, I will pay above the price because the value of that to me is greater than, than the money amount. Friends, in the case of sacrifice, full price must always be paid. And the best person that we can continue to talk about who understood this is David. And we're going to read about his account in 2 Samuel chapter 24. We're going to read just a few verses here, a few verses like 15. <laughs> Pastor Joy skimmed over her story, but I'm going to read it for us this morning. Okay. So just bear with me. If you can follow along in your Bible, your smart device, or it'll also be on the screen. We're going to start in verse 10 of chapter 24 in 2 Samuel. And just to give you a little preface here, what happened was David, in his older age, okay, he had lots of victories, won many battles, and so he decided to take a census. Okay, and so aside from his um, army commander and some different advisors who told him not to do this, he did it anyway. So here, we're, gonna, we're, we're catching up here in verse 10. And this is in the uh, New Living Translation. It says, but after he had taken a census, David's conscience began to bother him. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly by taking a census. Please forgive me my guilt, Lord, for doing such a foolish thing. Pause there. Is, is taking a census, is that sinful? No. I mean, I think America, just a few years ago, we took a census. Did God strike down President Obama? No. Actually, in the Old Testament, you see Moses uh, took a census, and, and he was just fine for doing that. But it's the heart matter. Friends, understand this. There's a lot of times when we do things, when the heart isn't right in us doing them, that's when it becomes sin. Okay? So for David, he was, he was counting his fighting men because he wanted to be able to, to go to his friends or to his, his fellow kings and say, I got 800,000 fighting troops in my uh, regime or whatever, kind of like us today. Well, I got a thousand people that come to my church. We just got to be very careful with all that stuff. Okay. He did a very foolish thing. The next morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, who was David's seer. This was the message. Go and say to David, this is what the Lord says. I will give you three choices. Say three choices. We all like choices, but I bet you, you wouldn't like these ones. Okay. Choose one of these three punishments. Anybody ever do that as a parent? What would you rather get? Do you want to spank in? Do you want to be grounded? Or do you want to not have this? Who, I mean, who likes ultimatums? You know? So, that's, even God gives ultimatums. So if you ever hear somebody that tells you in your way of, 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 of bringing correction to your child that you shouldn't give them a choice, even God gave David a choice. Okay? Take it from him. He gave David a choice. Choose one of these three punishments I will inflict upon you. <laughs> Ouch. 
So Gad came to David and asked him, will you choose three years of famine throughout your land, three months of fling from your enemies, or three days of severe plague throughout your land? Think this over and decide what answer I should give to the Lord who sent me. And he says, I'm in a desperate situation. He didn't think about it. He didn't pray about it. He just answered it right there. Because we usually like to get it over with. If you're a person and say for, say for instance, you were a child and you were to get grounded for a week or take that whooping for like five seconds, what would you probably do? Who here would take the whooping over being grounded? You can't go out. You can't play. I'm going to just take the whooping. I'll cry a little bit. I'll get over it. And then it's over. That's kind of how David was. He's like, you know what? We're not going to take the three years. We're not going to take the three months. We're going to take the three days. Okay. A total of so the Lord sent a plague upon Israel that morning. It lasted three days. A total of 70,000 people died throughout the nation from Dan to the north Bathsheba in the south. Let me say this, friends. The more authority that's been given to you, friends, when you make decisions that are, that are unlawful or that are unjust or that are, are outside the will of God, it does not just affect you anymore. It affects your friends, your family. And in David's case, because he was king, it affected 70,000 families who had a person in their family die. You can make a decision, maybe it affects just you and your, your spouse, okay? President Obama makes a decision if it affects thousands, okay? Millions, yeah, that's what I meant. That's exactly what I said, millions, after you said it first. <laughs> but as the angel was preparing to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented and said to the de death angel, Stop, that is enough. At that moment, the angel of the Lord was sent by the threshing floor of Arun of the Jebusite. When David saw the angel, he said to the Lord, I am the one who sinned and done wrong, but these people are as innocent as sheep. What have they done? Let your anger fall against me and my family, and David builds an altar. Wow. How powerful is it? This is why he was a man after God's own heart. He looked and he said, all these people are suffering because of my sin. And he even takes the blame and he asks God, release it from these families and put it on my own family. Maybe I'll get there one day. That's powerful. That day, Gad came to David, said to him, go and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up to do what the Lord had commanded him. When Aruna saw, the, saw that the king and his men were coming towards him, he came and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Why have you come, my lord the king? Aruna asked. David replied, I've come to buy the, your threshing floor and to build an altar to the Lord there so that he will stop the plague. Take it, my lord the king, and use it as you wish. Aruna said to David, Here's oxen for the burnt offering. You can use the threshing boards and the ox yoke for wood to build a fire for the altar. I will give it to you, your majesty. And may the Lord your God accept your sacrifice. Look at your neighbor and say, No. But the king replied to Aruna, No. I insist on buying it, for I will not present burnt offerings to the Lord my God that have cost me nothing. So David paid him 50 pieces of silver for the threshing floor and the oxen. Say full price. David didn't give Aruna the 50% buy one, get one free deal. He paid full price because he understood sacrifice. He understood that I'm not going to offer something to God that costs me nothing. That's what true sacrifice is. Sacrifice means it really does cost me something. So, for instance, if you're in a position or you're in a place where you do something or you give something and it doesn't really hurt, is that sacrifice? No, that's good. I mean, that's giving and that's great. But sacrifice is when it stings. And so, in David's case, he understood that he had to pay full price for this plague to stop. And he did not want to offer anything to God that cost him anything. Noah Webster, in his 1828 dictionary, defines sacrifice as this. It means if you don't have one of those, you need to get one of those because Noah Webster is the person that, that wrote the dictionary back in 1828. The Bible actually, or the, uh, he actually has Bible verses in the dictionary. He actually had the Bible memorized chapter and verse. This guy was a genius. Okay. He defines sacrifice as this, to offer to God 
in homage or worship by killing and consuming as a victim on an altar or to procure a favor or to express thankfulness. Number two, to destroy, surrender, or to suffer, to be lost for the sake of obtaining something. To me, that sounds a lot like Paul. I consider it all a loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Sounds a little bit like Paul there. Number three, to devote with loss. So that means you're going to give something and you're going to be at loss for your giving that. And then finally, fourth means to destroy or to kill. Like if you sacrifice it, you know, you kill it, you destroy it, it's over. You know, you sacrifice, boom, it's done. Okay. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 through 2. I shared a little bit about this earlier, but I want to read how it words it in the New Living Translation just because it's good. And this is what, he, this is what Paul writes in, the, in Romans chapter 12. It says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all that he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind that he will find acceptable. This is the true way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs. Sorry. Lost my place. Don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you in the new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will is for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Friends, how many of us understand that the will of the Lord for you is perfect and pleasing and good? The Bible says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. The Bible says this. It says that if we meditate on the law day and night, that we will be prosperous and successful in all that we do. So friends, when we offer ourselves to God, it's not really to be quite honest at a loss when we give ourselves to him. Because when we give ourselves to him, what it's really actually like doing, it's almost like having an investment. At first, it may seem like a sacrifice when we offer ourselves to God, when we offer our money to God, when we offer our time to God, when we offer our resources, when we give Him our energy, when we give Him our life, our, our whatever. It may seem like a sacrifice at first, but when you start seeing the results of you giving to Him, you realize that it isn't a sacrifice, it's an investment. What is it that we really lost? When you give your life over to Christ and you gave him nothing but selfishness and garbage and pride and arrogance and anger and lust and whatever it is that's filled your life. And then when you, when he's done that work in you and you leave a person that walks in humility and grace and mercy and have love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Friends, were you really at a loss? No, you were an investment. When we give ourselves to God, we're really investing ourselves. The Bible even says, it says, Jesus said this, whoever forsakes mother or father or sister or brother for my sake, hundredfold increase will inherit a hundredfold what was, what was given to them. It says twofold here on this earth and also in heaven. So what does that say? Does that say, okay, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to leave my whole family and I'm going to be a nomad and I'm going to go, go off into the desert and I'm going to let my beard grow long and I'm never going to take a bath and I'm going to go serve Jesus? No. But what that means is, friends, when you start living a life that's pleasing to God, there's actually going to be people, those who are closest to us will be the ones that have the, the worst fit about it. Because they don't like the way that you're, that you're now living for Jesus and now that you're, you're trying to do what's right because they like you to be miserable like they are. And they want, to be, they want you to be in bondage just like they're in bondage. And so when you start saying yes to God, what has to happen for you to live a successful life? You got to let go of your party family. You got to let go of those uncles and aunts that you, I don't care how dedicated, I don't care what kind of dirt, I don't care what kind of past you have. If you want to continue living in the past, you continue living right alongside them. But friends, if you want to live in everything that God has for you, then those are some of the people, and it's so sad and it's so hard, are the ones that we have to cut off. 
And you know what? And they may think that you're, that you're snobbish or, or that you're, you're religious or all this other stuff. But understand this. If they're not going in the same direction you're going, then friends, who's going to pull who into what direction? If you haven't pulled them alongside you by now, then friends, they're probably, it's not going to happen. Let God use another vessel to do that. So when he's saying if you forsake them, not saying that you totally forget them, but you say, you know what? To me, my relationship with God is more important than my family, and I must say yes to God. And when you do that, understand this. This is what's so beautiful. Jesus is hanging on the cross. He looks down, and, he, and he's in the middle of suffering, and he looks at his mother in her pain and anguish, losing a son, and he says to her, he said, he said mother, this is... Uh, and, and John, who's uh, kneeling right next to her or standing right next to her or whatever, he said, this is your son. Son, this is your daughter. What is he doing? Repairing relationships. Friends, when you give out, I'm telling you, God will replace those. He'll bring people around you that love you. He'll bring in spiritual fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and people who are doing the same thing, who will encourage you, who aren't trying to get something out of you, who aren't trying to manipulate you, but just want to love you and see you prosperous and successful. So if you have to leave those people behind, Jesus said, I will give you a hundred times increase. And if they have to be left behind, then they have to be left behind. Jesus even said, if you love them more than me, then you're not fit for the kingdom. Because all too often I've seen so many people, they start saying yes to God. They start receiving that which he has for them. Then all of a sudden the family starts crowding back in. And then you find that person stepping away from their Christian walk. I've been doing this long enough to see this happen. And their own family members are the ones, they don't even need the devil beating them up. They don't even, they don't even need uh, the world to smack them around. Because it's their own family that the enemy uses to, to draw them right back into their same old bondage. Sacrifice. Look at your neighbor and say sacrifice. But this is the cool thing, really, to be quite honest. When we sacrifice, we gain something. I love this. Psalm 50, verse 14 says this. It says, make thankfulness your sacrifice to God and keep the vow you've made to the Most High God. You want sacrifice? You want to sacrifice to God? Then make thanksgiving your sacrifice. I love it that Jesus, when he was talking to his disciples, he wasn't actually talking to them per verbatim, but they were right there along them, but he was talking to them. And he said to them, he said, do, do me a favor, go and, and figure this out. I require mercy, not sacrifice. Go figure that one out. That's what we really, friends, it's not about how much you're giving in front of everybody and how much you're serving. It's about living a life that's full of mercy and grace, giving him sacrifice of praise. Psalm 107, verse 22, also found in Psalm 116 and verse 17. It says, make thankfulness your sacrifice to God. Let, let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and sing joyfully about his glorious acts. I will offer to you a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. Friends, when we're sacrificing like this, all I see is gain. Friends, when you're giving yourself to others, when you're giving yourself to your community, when you're giving yourself to your church, friends, when you see people encouraged and blessed, when you choose to sacrifice of your time and your energy, and you see people's lives change, and you see people's families brought back together, friends, the only thing that's really at loss is your own selfishness. The only thing you're really saying no to is your own selfish, sinful nature. Friends, so let's follow the ultimate example of the one who sacrificed for us Jesus being like him. Friends, he spent himself on behalf of others. He did not show favoritism or partiality. He showed compassion, consideration. He loved others. Friends, let us be thankful to him. Let our acts to him be offerings of thanksgiving, saying, God, I'm going to give you my time, my talent, my resources, my money, my energy, my service as a sacrifice of thanksgiving because of how good you are to me. Friends, let us continue to see how we can step it up as Pastor Joy talks about service. You know, David was such a man of God that God made a covenant with him and promised that the Messiah would come through his line. And that's why we see G Jesus being called the son of David. Jesus actually came from the line of David because David learned to truly surrender and to truly sacrifice. 
And there's no better example of one who surrenders every, who surrendered everything and sacrificed everything and who is a true servant than Jesus Christ. Jesus surrendered his position in, in heaven to come to be, a, the Bible says in Philippians 2, that he took on the very nature of a man by clothing himself and, and, and being a, a servant of people, left the royalty of heaven to come here on earth to be born in a manger, friends. He surrendered. He sacrificed everything by taking our sins upon himself and making atonement, buying us back from the enemy by making atonement for our sins on the cross of Calvary. And friends, he taught us by example on how to be a servant and how to lay down his life, the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate uh, servant of all, Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, it says in Matthew 20, 28, it says, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the perfect example, friends. Of all three of these points that we need to step it up in, we need to step it up in our surrender, true repentance. We need to step it up in our sacrifice, giving everything that we have to the one who's given us everything. And we need to step it up in our service to him. See, Jesus taught us even how to, to serve a foundational scripture here that is going to wrap it all in is found in Matthew 5, 41. It says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two. This was spoken by Jesus to his to, to disciples. See, this command by Jesus is known by some theologians as the second mile principle. Say that with me, the second mile principle. See, the Greek word translated here, if anyone forces you or some translation says compel you, it carries with it the idea of a readiness and a willingness to submit an inconvenience or an unreasonable demands. See, in the context of this scripture, if we understand that Jesus was talking to Jewish people. He was talking about the Romans who had uh, rule and reign over, their, their, over the known world of the time and especially where they lived at. See, the Roman soldier under imperial law could demand a Jewish man or a boy to carry his burden, his, his package, whatever he was carrying with him, his book bag, if you will, up to one mile it was law that if he came to a Jewish man or a Jewish boy and he had his army gear with them, he could say, I need a break. Here you go. You carry it with me. And it was law that they had to carry that for one mile. But Jesus is looking at people who are oppressed, who are bitter against the Roman rulers and saying, if you are asked to go one mile, I want you to go too. Now, can you imagine how they took that? Right? He's coming to people who are oppressed by a foreign country in their land and saying, if anyone asks you to go one, and they know what he's talking about. The Jewish men and boys knew that what he, the example he was saying, if they ask you to go one mile, what's the law? If a soldier from Rome would come and ask you to carry his luggage for a mile, you have to do it as law. So Jewish people understood that and said, I am not going one step past that mile. I know how many steps. I mean, they had like, like how I have on my, you know, I don't have, I need to be doing my phone right now. They knew how many steps it equaled a mile and they weren't going one step past that. But Jesus came to them and said, I know you're oppressed. I know that you are in bondage. I know that this is not comfortable. But I'm telling you to go past your, your go outside the box. And even though you don't feel like it, and even though it's not comfortable, I'm asking you to go a second mile. Matter of fact, he goes on and says, if someone hits you on, strikes you on the one cheek, turn the next one to him. This was outside of the box. For Jewish people they're like how in the world what are you talking about what kind of service are you asking of us and friends we still don't understand that kind of service we still don't understand what it really means to go the extra mile See, this phrase was used so regular by Christians throughout the centuries that the phrase to go the second mile or to go the extra mile has been even found 
its way into a modern language today. Jesus was speaking to his followers to go the extra mile, to do twice as much as what is asked. And so as Christians, we should be the best workers there are. I remember when I was a young adult and I was Actually, Pastor Josh and I were just engaged, and, and we just finished our internship, and so I did not have employment. And I remember going and applying for uh, a position at the YMCA, and I sat down, and they asked me why they should hire me, and I told them, because I'm a Christian, and because I'm a Christian, I serve Christ, and I'm going to go above and beyond. I'm going to be the best worker that can possibly be in this place. Friends, they hired me on the spot right there. I walked outside and told Pastor Joshua, my we were just engaged at that time. He was like, I'm so proud of you, baby. You remember that? Yep, the South Y. But friends, God has called us to be the best at whatever we're doing. What, if you're working in a factory, you should, you should be producing the most stuff of whatever you're producing. <laughs> right? If you're, if you're a college student, you should be getting the best grades you can possibly get with the ability that God has given you. If you are a mother, you should be the best mother to those children. You should be reading to your kids every single day. You should be preparing meals, making sure they get their vegetables, telling them about Jesus. Come on, we should be the best mother there possibly is. If you work in the business world, you should be the best businessman there possibly is because you're not going to just do what your boss tells you to do. You're going to go the extra mile. You're going to take it to the next level. Because God has called you to live that kind of life. That's what King David did. There is a difference between King David and King Saul. King Saul cared about what people thought about him. When he went and, and, and God said, I want you to wipe out this whole nation. I want you to even take out all the animals because they're an enemy pagan nation that's going to serve the devil anyway. God, no, see, you have to understand, he was all-knowing. So he already knew where their destination and destiny was. And he said, wipe them out. And King Saul went and said, I'm going to wipe them all out except for the best of the animals because I'm going to keep that for myself and for, and for the army. And then when he came and, and Samuel, God sent Samuel to bring correction to him, he said, but the soldiers made me do it. Right? But, but this and this and this and that. And that's the kind of uh, example that we don't want to fall. That's the kind of making excuses. Well, I can't produce as much as I, you know, as I should because the person on the line next to me is, is distracting me. Or I can't focus and be a Christian in this factory because they're playing a whole bunch of secular music and it just messes up my mind. Come on, friends. Christ is in you. You could be able to be a Christian no matter where you're at. Well, I just have a bad attitude when I went to work today because my wife was getting on my nerves and she was harping and snapping at me on my way out the door. So now everybody who works for me or works under me or works alongside of me has to put up with it. Or I didn't get a good grade on this test because my teacher's out against me. Come on, friends. Go the extra mile. Stop making excuses like Saul and be like David, who when he sinned against the Lord, he said, I have sinned against the Lord and I'm going to take full responsibility. And Jesus being the ultimate example, being the one who sacrificed everything, who surrendered all so that we can have relationship as saying to us today, will you go the extra mile? Even, even with your enemy. The Romans were their enemies, but they went the extra mile. Those who followed Jesus' command went the extra mile. Friends, God is asking us today as a church collectively to step it up to be the best we can be in Christ Jesus. We have to remind ourselves, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can be the best I could possibly be through him. The best wife I could possibly be. Who can, you know, have a challenge to one another as a husband and wife. Outserve one another. We were meeting with our, our dear friends this week, and uh, we were, you know, doing some, some thinking and how we can be better pastors and how we can grow in challenging one another. And Pastor Joshua reminded our friends that we took this test years ago, and it was how you respond to criticism. And oddly enough in this, right, isn't it how you respond to criticism? How you respond to confrontation, which is criticism in my mind, but how you respond to confrontation. Okay, so when you're confronted, how you respond. And out of, it, was a, it was a group of us pa pastors in our section that took this test, probably about 30 of us. And <laughs> funny enough that Josh and I, I think we're the only ones 
the two of us, both alphas, Lord help us, responded are the way we respond to confrontation is we're competitive. So therefore, if we're confronted and someone confronts us about something that's not done right or that we can't do something a certain way, our response is, oh yeah, let me show you. <laughs> and so we had a, a few rough years in the beginning and days of how we responded to confrontation with one another. And we're telling the roles this, and they know because they were there with us in the early days. Poor Laura had to be a marriage counselor before she was even married because Josh and I married first. And Isaiah said, you know what? Now you guys can just turn it like this now that you're more mature in crisis. Oh, yeah? We're gonna, how we're going to respond by competition? I'm going to outserve you. No, no, you're not. I'm going to outserve you. No, I'm going to be the better spouse. No, I'm going to be the better spouse. And I took that to heart. I said, I like that. I like that thought. If we could all have that thought that I'm going to do the best I can do, I'm going to live in the second mile. Come on. I'm going to live. <laughs> Am I winning? Well, come on, baby. There's still time. You can catch up. <laughs> I want to date. I'm just saying. Okay. Catch up. Catch up. <laughs> I want to live in that second mile. Do you want to live in that second mile? At your job, man, whatever you do, do it unto the Lord. If you work at a factory, unto the Lord. If you are a teacher or a nurse, unto the Lord. If you're a businessman, unto the Lord. If you're a student, unto the Lord. Everything we do should be unto the Lord, and we need to take it to the next level. Well, friends, at the church right now, we're asking you to live in the second mile. We're asking you to think about what type of Christian do you want to be. Do you want to be a mediocre Christian? Someone who just sits on the fence, someone who doesn't truly make a decision, or do you want to be that type of Christian that lives in that second mile? You want to be that type of Christian that, that, that will take it to the next level, that's going to step up in Christ. Well, let's start with our own personal relationship with the Lord. Let's make sure that we're cleansed, that we're living right, that we are holy and, and, and people that are set apart for him. That means we need to go through and look through our house and say, is there certain things that we're doing that's keeping us from being what God has called us to do. I remember when I first gave my heart over to the Lord and I was a teenager and I sold out for everything. I remember going through my closet, friends, of all things. And when I say closet, I'm not talking metaphorically. I'm talking, okay, let me rephrase. <laughs> I went through my closets. Papa, Papa Frank, Mama Vicky, wave to everybody. That's my parents in the back. They even built me a new one when I was 16. Yeah, they did. They built on a closet in my room. It was bad. I worked just to buy clothes. But I went through my closets, and I had bags of clothes that I gave away to the dumpster, not to the giveaway, because they were hoochie wear. <laughs> and I wanted to be a new creature, so I had to get rid of the shorts that are so short it should be a belt. You know what I'm saying? I had to get rid of the shirts that were so short it should just be undergarment. You know what I'm saying? I had to get rid of these things because I wanted to reflect Christ and not draw attention to myself, but draw attention to him. And that was something that the Lord convicted me of. I went through and I had to get rid of music. Matter of fact, let me tell you a story about Pastor Joshua when I, when him and I, before we even started dating, he picked me up. <laughs> I got five minutes, y'all. This is worth it. Okay. He picked me up in his Bonneville. You remember that? Oh, the Bonnie. He picked me up and back in the day, see, we had, it was, we weren't, we're not old enough for like eight tracks or tapes, but we had CDs and we had a case, right, of CDs of music. He had a case. I mean, like big, it looked like a trapper keeper of music. You remember that, huh, sister? You remember? Rachel's laughing. She remembers. My, my man has always been into his music, right? And so I'm just his friend at the time. I mean, literally, we didn't even start dating for a whole, I went away to Bible school. Wasn't, we came back before I even, before we and interned together, before we even started liking each other in that way. But just as a sister in the Lord, I'm looking through his CDs. I'm like, oh, this is good Christian, this and this and that. And then there was like some blank spaces and then there was some music in the back. And I got to the music in the back. I'm like, what is this? That just some certain songs that he just couldn't get rid of. And I'm not saying all secular music is of the devil, but these ones that he had was bringing him down. And I was like, I said, bro, look at all this good Christian music you have. What, what's with these few songs back here that you just can't get rid of? This is before. I challenged you before we was even married. Aw. And you know what? He took that music and, he, and, and you got rid of it, didn't you? Didn't you, like, break it up that night or something? 
because he was ready to live in the second mile, friends. What is it that's holding us back from giving everything to God? Is it certain music we listen to? And I'm not talking legalism, okay? I'm not talking legalism. But is there certain things that you're listening to or watching that you know you probably shouldn't? Is there certain, is there certain people that you're around? And every, you don't even drink, but when you're around this person, you just got to drink. And then all of a sudden, you can't just have one drink. You got to have two, three. And all of a sudden, now, oh, I'm not drunk. I'm just buzzed, Pastor. Come on, you know the difference. Come on. Is there certain friends that are holding you back, friends? Live in the second mile. Let's check this first. And then sacrifice. How are you giving everything to the Lord? Oh, but Pastor, man, I need you to, to help me out in this situation. Help me. Have you, have you, have you, have you started committing your finances to the Lord? Are you tithing? Are you giving your 10% to the Lord? If you've done that already, and friends, that's, that's so hard for people who are supposedly seasoned saints. I remember a, a leader in our church who had a really, a couple of them had a really hard time in that area. And I remember going to my husband, I said, Pastor Josh, this person is a person of faith. Why are they, how can they have faith for, for God to like show up like right now in, in the physical and, but yet not have faith with their finances? not have faith to give just that 10% to the Lord and watch him use that 90 like it's even more, like it's more than 100. I know, man, we don't like to talk about that, but friends, come on. That's a practical way of sacrificing to the Lord and saying, watch what I have more with 90% than I do with 100 with Jesus. Come on, come on. And maybe you guys have already been there and you are faithfully tithing. Well, you know what? Is there something you can give above? Are you giving to missionaries? Are you giving to our capital campaign? Are you saying, you know what? Are you seeing a brother or sister in need that could maybe use a, a financial blessing? Are you being as best good steward? And I'm telling you, friends, this is an area that I had to always go back to the Lord. I give my tithe. I give my offering. But sometimes I'm like, what am I doing with the rest of it? Am I being as faithful as I need to be? I need to be a better steward. We can all say, let's live in the second mile and be a better steward. For Jesus. And then finally, friends, how are you serving the Lord? Are you serving the church? Do you know the church is at the hands and feet of Christ? Do you realize that you are the church, right? It's not just Vision Ministries or whatever church in this city that you may attend. It is you are the church. The people of God are the church. How are you serving the church? Well, let me tell you, friends, we have lots of opportunities as we go to second service for you to live in the second mile. Our, you know, just here, we can say we need help with Vision Kitchen. We need people that will come right after work and give an hour of their time to sacrifice and serve the people of this community. Or, or we're saying, hey, as you are being fruitful and multiplying, can you please help us in the nursery? <laughs> can you please help us in kids' church? And can you do it onto the Lord in that second mile lifestyle saying, I'm going to give everything. I'm going to serve with all of my heart. Friends, I want to encourage you today. God is calling us to step it up. If you would stand up on your feet with me, we're going to close in prayer. It's time. 